Isaiah chapter 19. I hope by now in our study of of the book of Isaiah, we have come to begin at least to recognize that uh, there are, as, as we've talked about prophecies in general, there are through these prophetic books in the Old Testament, uh, old, I, sh- I should say, uh, near fulfillments and far fulfillments. And uh, oftentimes they are they're very, very distinct in certain places in the Scriptures. Uh, at times they're not so distinct, and there are certain things that we have to look for uh, to find where those distinctions may be. But uh, nonetheless, we will find near fulfillments and far fulfillments in this particular prophecy that is given actually against Egypt and for Egypt. Now, this is a very unique chapter when we look at it from that particular perspective, because since we've been in chapter 13, we have been um, we have been looking at burdens against certain nations, <clears throat> and. Uh, and, and now we come to a burden against Egypt. And yet, at the end of this particular chapter, we find that there is a statement of, uh, that is made toward them for Egypt. And we'll see that when we get there. Let's read the first four verses and then we'll pray. And then we'll get right into our study. Isaiah 19, beginning at verse 1. The burden against Egypt... Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fall in its midst. I will destroy their counsel, and they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Father, we pray for the blessing of your Holy Spirit tonight. Allow us, Lord God, the opportunity to understand more and more of your word as we Read and study this passage tonight. May it also be an encouragement to us and certainly an exhortation and a challenge to our hearts to take hold of, of those things that are applicable to us right now. And we pray, Father, that as we get closer now to Christmas Day and certainly to all of the festivities that take place during the holiday season, that we will never lose sight of what this season is and what this time is all about. We ask you, Lord, to help us in being good witnesses and good testimonies of the love of Jesus Christ in our lives. We ask these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in chapter 13, we we began a series of studies that is called The Burdens focusing on the prophecies given against various nations, all of whom were at one time enemies of God's people. We looked at the proclamations that were given against Babylon, against Syria and Israel, Israel being, of course, the northern kingdom, the kingdom that had no good kings throughout its years of of, uh, being separated from Judah. And then we saw a woe last time directed toward Ethiopia, now, while we may not understand fully all the details referred to, uh, time and again, you know, we can enter into our study of all of these particular chapters and certain things may not yet be revealed to us as clearly as we'd like. Nonetheless, we cannot fail to recognize the sovereign hand of God dealing with these one-time proud and, and haughty kingdoms with their independent spirits and attitudes toward His people, which in particular would be Judah at this time. And the same goes for Egypt. During the time that Isaiah prophesied, Egypt was in an outward alliance with Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and yet she would prove absolutely unreliable and untrustworthy when it came to helping Ahaz, the king of 
of uh, Judah at the time. And then later on, Hezekiah in standing against the surging tide of the Assyrian armies and the Assyrian troops. Now, the, the viewpoint of history, and we can call it the philosophy of history, uh, down through the ages, could be summed up in a paraphrased form of Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Now, Galatians 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, in other words, the viewpoint of history down through the ages could be summed up in a paraphrased form of that particular verse to say whatsoever a man, I'm sorry, whatsoever a nation soweth, that shall it also reap. And so that, that same thought, that same philosophy or idea applies to nations as much as it does to individuals and how we sow things and reap things as, as it were. But throughout history, the blessings of God have settled on nations that pursued righteousness and His judgments have fallen upon those corrupt and violent nations that have disregarded subjection to God's hand. When you, when you see nations disregard God's desire to uh, have them humbly submitted to Him and they, they disregard that and they, and they act uh, uh, un unwilling uh, toward God, then, then, then judgment does come. God, of course, giving opportunity for them to know that He would be on their side if, if they were to, to choose Him. But in Isaiah's day, as I referred to last time, Egypt was ruled by an Ethiopian monarchy that would eventually pull back to the south. It's a very interesting thing that when you study Egyptian history, that when you talk about the, the south, you're talking about what they call Upper Egypt. And when you talk about the north of Egypt, they call it the Lower Egypt. And, and the reason is because of the flow of the Nile River. The Nile River flows south to north. And of course, you know, in our country, you know, we see our rivers flow north to south, and, and therefore we, we, we tend to, you know, say it that way. But for them, you know, everything began with the Nile and where it flowed from, that was considered to be the upper area. As it flowed out, it was the lower area. Just as you would look at the delta of the Mississippi. That's the southern area, of course, but it's more obvious that way because north and south actually apply to us. Uh, but but in, in I don't know why I'm even teaching that. But anyway, it's, uh, you know, but the, if, you, if you study Egyptian history, that's what, you, that's what you deal with. And so this Ethiopian monarchy had actually pulled back to the south in what they called Upper Egypt, while the northern part was being ruled actually by an Egyptian priest named Sethos. Now, sooner or later, Egypt would be divided into 42 provinces. Now, there is reason why I'm giving you this historical uh, little documentation here. But the Egypt would then be divided into 42 provinces called gnomes. As a matter of fact, in the Septuagint version of, uh, of the Old Testament, uh, this passage, it, it talks about the kingdom against kingdom. It's called gnomes against gnomes. And they use that particular term. And, and, and which were each led by city kings. So it was like city kingships that were being uh, set up as these provinces. And this, of course, brings us to the first judgment that God burdens them with. This is why we have to understand at least this, this much about uh, Egyptian history. It, he's burdened them now, first and foremost, with civil war. He burdens them with civil war. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. That's a very significant picture that we're being given. I'll explain it in just a moment. But it says that God himself comes into Egypt to judge Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. Notice verse 2 that now he begins to speak, God does, in the first person. And he says, I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. So now from Isaiah's perspective, at that time, these things had not yet been set up. But now they were going to be set up for this particular type of judgment. And so the first picture that we find is that of God riding upon his divine chariot. By the way, many times in the Old Testament we see God coming in clouds, and that is his form of coming to uh, bring some kind of judgment or some kind of decision 
against people or persons or nations. Uh, and, and so he comes from his throne in heaven to deal with this guilty nation. The second picture is that of the idols of Israel trembling at God's presence. Now stop here for a moment. Let's fill in some gaps here. Egypt, of course, if you go all the way back to the time of Moses, you realize that uh, Egypt placed the children of Israel under, under uh, slavery for 400 years, thereabouts, 430 years. And so they were in this, this kind of situation. And of course, when the children of Israel left under God's command through Moses, then of course the Egyptian people had this tremendous hostility toward uh, the Jews. And so this is one reason why this is, uh, uh, is taking place. Uh, the very way that they were approaching God's people or the way they were holding certain things against God's people or the way they treated God's people is one of the reasons why these things are happening. So it is interesting then to note that historically, Egypt actually began as a monotheistic people. In other words, religiously speaking, they believed in one God. But what the Apostle Paul applied to the heathen in general was specifically manifested in Egypt. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Because here in Romans chapter 1, we get uh, somewhat of a, of a, a template here for this kind of thought that uh, where man was created, that in reality, man knows that there is a God. Man knows there is and has knowledge of a God. And you'll see here in verse 20 of Romans chapter 1, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, notice that, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And you might keep that thought in mind where it says their foolish hearts were darkened, because in just a little bit we'll see where they are actually called foolish in just a moment, the Egyptians. And their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made, or into an image made like corruptible man. Notice the, the progression. Corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. That is an important uh, uh, progression. From man to birds to four-footed animals and creeping things. And, and, and I'll, I'll note that in just a moment. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for, a, for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, it has been said that in Isaiah's day, there was no other nation on earth that was so much in the grip of superstition and filthy idolatry as Egypt. Apes, cats, frogs, crocodiles, lizards, everything was venerated by them. Now that was a quote from a, a particular commentator that, that, was, that was speaking of the time in which Isaiah was writing these things. Even at that time, animals of these types were being venerated. That's an interesting word, veneration. Uh, it's oftentimes used uh, in, in, in various, even sects of the church. And, and uh, it, in other words, it brings some kind of worship towards some kind of an idol or thing. But first of all, talking about the Egyptians, they started to set up images. First of all, they started to set up images made like corruptible men. We've all seen the hieroglyphics. We've all seen the pictures, you know, coming out of all of these, you know, this interest with Egyptian, you know, uh, sphinxes and, and, and the pyramids and what's found in them and, and looking at the, you know, all of the, the writings and the glyphs and hieroglyphs and whatever else they call them and, and all. And so we've seen certain types of men, you know, dressed in, and painted in a certain way, and sometimes then it became, you know, it became that they would begin to make a, a, a man's body with a head of some kind of an animal. But, but it began with the corruptible man, whom they recognized as gods of the various forces of nature. 
Later on, they would, de- uh, they would deify. In other words, they would make gods out of birds, like their sacred Isis. Isis was a bird. And beasts like the sacred bull and the cat of Bulbastis, or Bubastis, I should say. And they degenerated to the worship of reptiles. And they began to worship crocodiles and asps. Asps being a, a type of snake. And, and some of you, if you remember the movie Cleopatra, you know, she had her asps. And that's how I think she bought it. But anyway, eventually they, they would even, after that, they would even deify insects. Did you notice the progression from man to birds to four-footed beasts and to creeping things? And they, they worshipped and, and deified insects such as the scarab. So those of you who may have seen the, the recent mummy movies, you know, and seeing those large beetle-like uh, bugs all over the place, you know, those were the scarabs. It would scarab me for sure. But anyway, ah, that was a bad one. All right. But what is significant is that at the time of the Exodus, going all the way back to Moses, that at the time of the Exodus, the Lord not only made the idols of Egypt totter in His presence, He's already done this once. He made the images and, and, the, and the idols, I should say, of Egypt totter in His presence. He actually toppled them over. He toppled the images over. He directed each of the plagues back in the time of the Exodus. He directed each of the plagues against the particular idol. Kunum, the guardian of the Nile. Hapi, the spirit of the Nile. And the god Osiris, the Nile, in other words, was supposedly his bloodstream. When the waters were turned into blood, he toppled those gods down. He toppled over the goddess Het, the frog goddess of fertility, with a plague of frogs. He toppled the goddess Hathor, a cow-like mother goddess, with a plague on the livestock. He toppled over the god Imhotep, the god of medicine, with a plague of boils. He toppled over Nut, spelled like nut, probably really was, but he toppled over Nut, the goddess of the sky, with a plague of hail. He toppled Seth, the god who protected the crops, with a plague of locusts. Ra, we've heard of Ra, the sun god, was toppled with the plague of darkness. And the Pharaoh himself, considered to be a god, with the plague against the firstborn. The Lord did it once. And He would do it again. It is very significant that God comes to Egypt to bring this judgment because he had already been there once before. And what did they learn from it? You see. Because of this judgment on the idols of Egypt, the people would become disheartened and even depressed. Think about the text here in verses 1 and 2. The heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. When their gods are toppled at the presence of Almighty God. But that wasn't all. Look at verses 3 and 4 now. The spirit of Egypt, it says, will fail in its midst. Not only will the heart of Egypt melt, but the, the, the spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their counsel, and they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers, and the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Not only would the heart of Egypt melt, but the spirit. An interesting word in the Hebrew. The, the word is ruach. We oftentimes use that in, in, uh, in, in bringing together the thought of, of, of uh, the spirit of God. The ruach. The wind. The spirit of God himself. But the word is used here for the spirit of Egypt. And it says that that spirit of Egypt would fail. It would be as if they got the wind knocked out of them. That's pretty much the description of this particular passage. In other words, they would despair in realizing that their idols and gods and cultic practices could never save them. That's what was happening. 
They have been worshiping these idols. They have been venerating them. They have been uh, offering sacrifices to all of these idols. And not one of them, not one of these things could save them. That was what God was showing them. That's what God was, was presenting to them when He came Himself to topple these gods in their presence. And sound counsel, if they ever really had it, would be removed by the way they did. There's a, there's a verse of Scripture, I believe it's in First Kings chapter 4, verse 30. It talks about the wisdom of the kings or the pharaohs of Egypt. They were supposed to be very wise, wise men. Of course, <clears throat> as a whole... Uh, the Egyptians were very wise in, in many things, uh, mathematically and scientifically. Uh, as a matter of fact, Moses himself was learned in all the wisdom, it says, of, e- of Egypt. So we know that they had a tremendous amount of wisdom. But the sound counsel, if they ever had it, would be removed, leading to turn from, uh, uh, from the wisdom of their leaders to pagan practices of contacting the dead. That's what they would end up doing. All of these things had to do, and, and, and of course, if you look at if Egyptian theology or Egyptian uh, idolatry and all of that, there was a lot of, of attempt to contact the dead through all of these other mediums, the, the charmers, the, the mediums, and the sorcerers. Now, stop for just a moment and think about this, that in our supposedly advanced society, we call these charmers psychics, or channelers of spirits. They're still around. They just have fancier names, and, and uh, you know now they can actually advertise on TV, and they can have signs up, you know, in, in front of their buildings, you know, palms red here, and uh, we'll tell you what your future is like, and, and, and go through all of this, you know, hubbub for a price, of course. Then a few years ago, I, I don't see this anymore, probably because it didn't work. But, you know, some of you remember Dionne Warwick, you know, was, you know, talking about the Psychic Friends Network. And it always puzzled me about Dionne Warwick, who, who you know, wanted to push the Psychic Friends Network because she once uh, used to sing a song called, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? Well, ask your psychic friend. Does she know the way? But, uh, you know, uh, she never knew the way, so... You know, that's why it probably failed. But uh, there's one thing that the Bible calls it, and it calls it dangerous, and, he for, and the Bible forbids it. The Word of God forbids this kind of channeling, this kind of psychic uh, charming, uh, or charming as it were. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, let's turn there for just a moment. Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 12. There shall not be found among you anyone, who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, that would actually be the fires of Molech, as it were, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. I, I think that we even, even we in the church have to be very careful about people who say that they can see into the future for us. If it's not based upon the Word of God, we don't need to talk to anybody. We have to be careful sometimes about people who actually, you know, We'll go to the sea. You know, tell me what God's saying to me, to to you about me. That that's uh, that's getting a little bit out of out of line. Because if you really want to know what God has to say, then you need to talk to Him yourself. You need to be in prayer. You need to be in communication with God. You need to be in that position of having a a, a, a communion and fellowship with God. And you need to be in God's Word because God's Word speaks to us. Every day it speaks to us if we will get into God's Word. If we'll quit messing around with what everybody else thinks. I don't care what people think. I care about what God thinks. 
If people ask me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not clear about something, well, what's the situation? Okay, well, here's what the Bible says. Now take what the Bible says, read it, pray, and ask God, is, is this what you have for me? Most of the time it's what he has for you because it's his word. But be careful if you say, oh, I don't want to hear that. See, then all of a sudden it's the person's heart going around looking for answers. But take what answers God gives you and, 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 and pray and ask God to give you the strength to do what is necessary and what is right. Because what we find in the scriptures is right and it is necessary. Okay. So... The end of all of this turmoil, getting back to Egypt, the end of all of this turmoil and trouble would be the rise of a cruel master and fierce king who would rule over them. And while it isn't really clear uh, which despot the, the prophecy was referring to, some names could be considered. Now, I'm, I'm going to begin with the one that most people believe is the, is, is the, is the cruel master. And and uh, and I I can say that we can we can start there. That's this is this would be a true statement. But but there are those who believe that the cruel lord or the cruel master here was a man named Esarhaddon of Assyria. And of course this fits with the with the uh, flow of the prophecy because we've been talking about how all these nations have been fearing this tremendous move of this nation of Assyria going from the east up north and then coming straight down south upon upon uh, uh, Israel, northern kingdom, and then toward, uh, toward the southern kingdom, and not stopping there, going on into Egypt and Ethiopia and Cush. So this, this would be really the start of, of this particular thought of this cruel master. He would definitely, definitely be the one. And he conquered, actually, Egypt in 671 B.C. Others think that it might have been either... Uh, uh, this one particular pharaoh named Shabaka of Ethiopia. If you remember, there was an Ethiopian dynasty in uh, Egypt, which was in 711 B.C., which is a little earlier. Or there was a person named Sameticus II, or Samic uh, II, in 595 to 589 B.C. So now that's, this is progressing. You know, here again, I'm giving you a little history, but there's a reason for it. Still others say that it was Artaxerxes Ochus in 342 B.C. So you'll notice it's moving toward... Uh, uh, you know, toward the um, common era, as it were, or the day of uh, the time of Christ. Now, I mention all of this because I want you to consider something that we find within the pages of Scripture. These were historic. Certainly, you know, Assyria coming down upon Egypt is, is biblical. Uh, but, but I want you also to read some of these prophecies. Look at Jeremiah 46 for just a moment. Jeremiah 46. And verses 25 and 26, it says, The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says, Behold, I will bring punishment on Ammon of No and Pharaoh and Egypt. Uh, all of that is, is in the area of, of Egypt, with their gods and their kings, Pharaoh and those who trust in him. And I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of his servants. Afterward it shall be inhabited as in the days of old, says the Lord. So now we find this name of Nebuchadnezzar. And so he's another king. And so what we're finding here is not just one cruel master, but a, you know, many cruel masters, beginning with Esarhaddon of Assyria, and, and even including, biblically, including uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're told that Nebuchadnezzar was a cruel king, but, but didn't fully uh, have complete control over uh, Egypt. Nonetheless, in Ezekiel 29, this is one more prophecy, and I'll, I'll stop here with those. But Ezekiel 29, verses 19 and 20, we're told, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He shall take away her wealth, carry off her spoil, and remove her pillage. And that will be the wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, because they worked for me, says the Lord God. God uses Nebuchadnezzar then to judge Egypt. So, in effect, really the picture here is not so much trying to figure out who this one particular cruel master is, because there were many. It is to show how God is using these particular armies or nations to judge the people of Egypt. 
to judge the pharaohs of Egypt, to judge them for their disobedience toward God, uh, toward, uh, to judge them for their cruelty toward his people, Israel. So whoever it was referring to, that cruel leader was a new affliction for an already tormented land. And so they kept getting all of this judgment, you see, from these various leaders. But the next judgment now is mentioned in the next section of chapter 19. You see, it's not just a judgment, it is judgments. The burden of Egypt are judgments. And the next one is the drying up of the Nile. Look at verses 5 through 10 of our text. It says, The waters will fail from the sea, and the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away, and be no more. The fishermen will uh, also will mourn. All those will lament who cast hooks into the river. Notice the kind of fishing that it talks about here. Casting hooks into the river, then they will languish and spread nets on the waters. So there was hook fishing and net fishing. Moreover, those who work in the fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed and its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. God now implements an economic judgment. A judgment that affects the economy of Egypt. And without a doubt, the Nile River was the key to Egypt's agriculture and economy. It once abounded with fish. It was the center of the papyrus industry, uh, which was used until paper was invented. It would overflow its banks every August, and the flood would water the fields. If the river didn't overflow its banks, there would be a famine. If that water didn't overflow, they would actually lose uh, crops and therefore wouldn't be able to feed the people. Cloth manufacturing, especially of Egyptian linen, from the flax plant. It was dependent on this annual flooding of the Nile, as was farming. And again, because of this judgment, the people's hearts would be extremely troubled. Now, it's been suggested that verses 5 through 10 were, were fulfilled when the Aswan High Dam was completed in Egypt in 1970. Some of you may have remembered back in the 60s, back then in those days, uh, remember how Egypt under Nasser had begun this construction of this particular dam. Uh, it was built 500 miles south of Cairo. It, has, it would stop the annual flooding of the Nile and it has opened up huge amounts of irrigated land. It also created the world's largest man-made lake, which was Lake Nasser. But there was a major problem created with the dam. When the Nile used to overflow its banks, it not only watered the fields, as I said, but it spread a rich layer of silt over the fields. But now the silt stays up at the dam. And the fields aren't fertilized. And it's caused an economic, or I should say a, an ecological nightmare. Additionally, there has been salt water intrusion in the farming areas in the Delta region. Of course, that kills the crops. And even the fishing industry in the Delta area has suffered. So some people believe that when that dam was built, that was another part of that judgment. The far fulfillment of it. Because it had already taken place earlier in the nearer fulfillment. So it's an interesting thing that, uh, that today they're still struggling with that particular problem. Now the third major way that the Lord struck Egypt with judgment was to give them not only cruel rulers and cruel uh, masters, but He gave them cruel leaders with foolish counsel. Not only gave them cruel leaders, but those same leaders had foolish counsel. Look at if you will, in verses 11 through 15 now of our text. It says, Surely the princes of Zoan, by the way, Zoan has another name. Some of you might recognize it from Indiana Jones. It's the name Tanis. 
And Tanis was up in the northern region in the Delta area, capital of the pharaohs. It was actually one time the capital of all the pharaohs. Notice that it says, surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? God says. Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. Are they able to tell you what I already know is what God is saying? The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Noph. Now Noph is, is actually also another name for it is Memphis, not Tennessee, but Memphis. They're again in the northern part of Egypt, which was the, actually at one time the capital of the kingdom. He says the princes of Noph are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt, which means they have seduced Egypt. They've, they've gotten all of the people of Egypt to, to buy into their lies and into their foolishness. Those who are the mainstay of its tribes. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst. You know, when you think about it, that very statement takes you back to Romans chapter 1, where it talks about God giving them over to their foolishness, giving them over to their desires, giving them over to their lusts and all of that. You can go back and read that later. But then it says, And they have caused Egypt to err in all her work as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. That doesn't sound real pretty, so I hope you haven't eaten dinner yet. Maybe I hope you have eaten it. I don't know. I often wonder, is it better to talk about stuff like that after you've eaten or before? Well, I don't know. But in any event, you know, a drunken man staggers in his vomit is not a pretty picture. Neither will there be any work for Egypt, which the head or tail, palm branch or bulrush may do. So for centuries, the Egyptians were respected for their wisdom. First Kings 4, verse 30. But now the princes and councils would not know what to do. And so there in verse 12, the Lord reminds us of what true wisdom is. There in verse 12, it is knowing what the Lord of hosts has purposed. But they didn't know what the Lord of hosts has purposed. Why? Because in this particular case, the Egyptian wise men couldn't tell you what God was thinking simply because they didn't know God. That's why they didn't know. And it brings up the question, can God be known? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior tonight? Then God can be known. Do you believe and trust that this Bible that we have before us is God's Word? Then God can be known. Maybe not to the fullest extent that we, in our finite beings, uh, would like to know more of. I mean, we, we can learn and know more about God every day as we commit ourselves to, to learning about the Lord and growing in Christ and growing in God's love and all of that. But, but, but He's made Himself known. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Jesus says, come to me. I can be known. God says to people in the book of Isaiah, look to me. Look unto me, all you lands. God can be known. Psalm 111, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is how we come to know God. We fear the Lord. We bow down to Him. We surrender ourselves to Him. We honor Him. We reverence Him. We respect Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding of all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1 verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. What did God keep calling the pharaohs? Fools. Why? Because they didn't know true wisdom. In Proverbs 2, verses 3 through 8, it says, Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. In other words, God can be found. God Himself tells us, If you search me, you'll find me. If you, if you search for me with all your heart. But the way He says it is, If you search me, you'll know me if you search for me with all your heart. I haven't finished what I was reading. Verse 6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth came knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. You know, there's a responsibility on our part. We need to walk uprightly. 
but He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of His saints. He's there to help us. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If you know the Holy One, you can begin to understand what God wants you to know and understand and live by. We need to fear the Lord again. I think sometimes we, we, we put that aside. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, I talked a couple of weeks ago about, about the things that we take for granted, the gifts that God has given us that we take for granted. Let's never take for granted the fact that we need to fear the Lord each and every day. And we need to bow before Him and realize that when we do, we're acknowledging Him as a God who is above all things, a God who is above all of His creation, and yet still loves us and has communion and fellowship with us and desires that. He desires that we have communion and fellowship with Him. So let's not take that for granted. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. Whether we do it here or alone at 5 o'clock in the morning at home, or whether we do it you know, after a long busy day and nobody else is around, we just worship God, or we're worshiping God in our hearts at work and keeping our connection with the Lord very, very much open. Getting back to Egypt, because I don't have a whole lot of time. Instead of walking a straight path, This nation was led astray by leaders who were as dizzy as a drunken man staggering around in his own vomit. And that's not not a pretty picture. The advice of their leaders offered no real solution to the problems that the nation was facing. You see, that's one of the struggles we find in our own country today. Everybody's got an answer, but nobody's got, you know, the solution. I mean, an an answer can be as, 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 as good as a a statement made, you know, to, to you know, draw the ire of certain folks against other people, but it may not have any kind of solution whatsoever. How many people say, well, this current administration doesn't know what they're doing. Well, tell us what to do then. Oh, well, just look at my website. And then you go to the website and they have nothing there. That's foolishness. And it's all around us. This world has grown no better throughout all the centuries during which the gospel has been preached and the Lord has been calling out and gathering a people for His name. Rather, it has become hardened in its attitude toward God and His Word. And this is why we as a people in this country need to pray for our country, pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, because we're responsible. Every nation is responsible before God. And we're missing that. How many people in our country today? I mean, you know, I I know it seems, it just seems so trivial, but they've made this big, huge thing out of the fact that, you know, we shouldn't be wishing people Merry Christmas. Give me a break. What is wrong with you? You don't like it? Then get away from me. So I'm not only going to tell you Merry Christmas, I'm going to tell you Jesus is the one who's going to save you if you'll listen to what he has to say to you. Right? Isn't that right? And we have the freedom to do it. This is America. This is the United States of America. Land of the free and home of the Atlanta Braves. We have every right. And it's not a big deal. Hey, listen, what what, what would happen if all of a sudden we were put under this, this extreme thing about celebrating. Wouldn't we do it anyway? Not so much Christmas, but worshiping our Lord. See, it's not about you know the lights and it's not about the creches and the whatever they call them, you know, nativity scenes. It's not about that. You know what it's about? It's about Jesus. Nobody can take that away from us. That's ours. He's ours and we're His. And we are called, no matter in what kind of situation we're in, we are called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we doing it? Or are we worried about somebody being offended because we sing, you know, a Christmas carol? Oh, come all you faithful. We can't sing that in school anymore. But you can sing, you know, let us know, let us know, let us know. Here now, Paso, it never snows. So what are we singing it for? Now we got, we're all messed up. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5 through 5 says, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. 
For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control. Sounds like 2006 going into 2007. Brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Jump down to verse 13. Because this is, what's talk, this, this is what we connect to, to what we're saying here in, in, in Egypt. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. There were evil men and impostors in that nation. They were leading them astray. That's what God was saying. And we need to get our advice from the right place. We need to get our advice from the right place. Where is that? Psalm 1, verses 1-3. through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Have you ever noticed a progression given to us in that, in that little uh, phrase in verse 1? Blessed is the man who walks not, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, so there's a walking going on, nor stands in the path of sinners, takes a little more state position there, nor sits. You know, that's what happens to us. And it's a very uh, subtle kind of thing that will happen that takes us away from the things of God. We walk, start walking a little bit with the counsel of the ungodly. Then all of a sudden we start standing around in the path of sinners. And then what? We sit in the seat of the scornful. That's a downward progression. And then we sit and rest. Sitting is a, a position of rest, but now we're resting where? Not in Christ. Not in God, not in God's Word, not in God's glory. We're sitting and resting in the world. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Whatever we do. And, you know, here again, don't get into this idea that, you know, prosper means, oh, I can make this and I can have that. And I can... You, know, you know what it's about? It's prospering spiritually. It's prospering in the things of God. It's prospering in those things that we can take and give to others so that they will come to know Christ. They will come to know God. They will come to know this blessedness. It's a blessedness when we walk in Christ, when we walk in God, when we walk in God's Word. How do we do it? Know God's Word and do God's Word. Know it and do it. i got to get back to Isaiah 19. Let's go. Uh, Verses 16 and 17. I'm putting, in, I'm putting in overdrive now. Here we go. In that day, Egypt will be like women. I'm sorry, ladies. This is very chauvinistic, right? In that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over. In other words, man, once God does this, they're going, ah! You know, the whole, everybody freaks out. All right. That's the picture. I don't know. I hope that screen didn't scare you. And, and, the, and the land of Judah will be a, a terror to Egypt. The land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts which he has determined against it. Understand when it says about the, the, the Egypt will be like women. In, in other words, remember in, in that particular understanding women were the weaker. Women were to be cared for. Women were to be taken care of. Men had their responsibilities to shelter them. They became like, like the weakened ones. That's the picture here. But the real phrase that's important is in that day. In that day. It appears 43 times in Isaiah, and though it might be referring to the, this time in particular, and this judgment in particular, it is more than likely pointing to the end times. More than likely pointing to the end. Because consider in, that in Isaiah's day, Egypt was a power for Israel to fear. In other words, Israel feared Egypt. But here we find that the tables are turned. All the Lord would need to do is to wave His hand and the people of Egypt would respond in terror. They would lose all of their quote-unquote manliness, as it were, and be seized by panic. How interesting that for thousands of years Judah lay in the shadow of the great Egyptian empire, yet the Lord prophesied a day when Judah will be mightier than Egypt. Did you know that that's happening right now? Egypt is a, uh, 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 Israel is a mightier nation than Egypt right now. This is fulfilled prophecy, folks. 
Israel is a mightier nation than Egypt. Can you imagine this one little nation that is surrounded by all of its enemies? Surrounded. The last major time that they tried to attack, not, not counting the, you know, the, the Scud missiles that were being sent over to uh, uh, Israel from Iraq. But the last attempt, 1973, the Yom Kippur War. Last major attempt. Before that, 1967, the Six-Day War in June. Going further back, about 1956 was another attempt. Uh, 1948, the very day after they became a na- Israel became a nation, all the nations of, 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 of the Arab nations and the Muslim nations attacked. They don't attack anymore. Why? They're afraid of them. They're afraid of Israel. I'll tell you why they're afraid of Israel, because God's hand is on Israel. Now, that does not mean that God is not going to continue to, to judge Israel, because Israel is, is bound for some judgment as well. The Bible teaches that. It has to be completed before Jesus comes to set up his kingdom. But, you know, I don't want to get way, way ahead of myself, but, but it's just interesting to think of how far Egypt has come in the last 40 years or so, after all of that stuff that we're talking about. Because in 1967 and 1973, it participated with the other Arab and Muslim countries to attack Israel. But by 1979, Egypt had become the first, quote-unquote, Arab nation to sign a peace treaty with Israel. Of course, the man who signed that peace treaty was assassinated, Anwar Sadat. And Sadat, his, his whole idea toward Israel had changed quite a bit for him to get to that point. Well, let's continue. In that day, it says again, verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. Now that's very symbolic in the sense of of setting up a memorial to God. So listen. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and He will send them a Savior and a mighty one. Who do you think that is? And He will deliver them. And then the Lord will be known to Egypt... And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. Wow. They will return to the Lord and He will be entreated by them and heal them. That's something to look forward to in all, in all the prophetic picture that's going on. That Egypt though they are going to be judged and yet still judged in in, in the far fulfillment, something's going to happen. Now, most commentators generally agree that the prophecy in verse 18 refers to the migration of many Jews to the land of Egypt following the destruction of the first temple. That did happen. There have been many Jews that have gone on to, to Egypt. But it's also possible that this passage is looking forward to the day when the relations between the Egyptians and the Jews shall become very close as both together shall acknowledge the one true and living God. I, I believe that's yet to come. But the Egyptians will learn to speak Hebrew. As a matter of fact, it talks about five uh, cities you know, that will do that, uh, which, by the way, is the official language of Israel today. And that's another reason to, to know that, uh, that the things that uh, we find in, in the Scripture are true. And, and the very fact that God's Word is true is that Hebrew continues to be a language. It, it didn't die out. It continues to be the, the language of, of God's people. One of the five cities that will follow the Lord will be named the city of destruction, which is an interesting thing because with one change of a letter in the Hebrew, we go from the city of destruction to the city of the sun, uh, which is what the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint call. It's a city called Heliopolis, which is still in that area of, of Egypt. And it comes from the word Helles as opposed to Kellis. Kellis is destruction. Helles is sun. And so it's really talking about that one particular city. There will be such a radical change in Egypt that an entire city that had been worshiping false gods will now worship the true God. 
In other words, the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day. That's why I said that this is a prophecy both against and for Egypt. It is interesting that this idea of the Egyptian, uh, Egyptians worshiping the Lord isn't all that strange in Scripture. Deuteronomy 23, verses 7 and 8 says, You shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian, an Egyptian because you, are, uh, you were an alien in his land. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. God has opened the doors for them to come and worship him. So it's not a strange thing in Scripture. It might be a strange thing for us. But verse 22 then suggests pain for healing. It says the Lord will strike Egypt he will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. You know that oftentimes God allows difficult times in our lives, but for the very purpose of bringing healing to us. He's allowed things to happen, but his purpose is to bring healing. It isn't always comforting during the affliction to experience that pain or to understand why the Lord is allowing it. And yet, think about this, that some diseases can only be helped by surgery. No other way. And when we're going through tough times, we, we sometimes need to ask the tough questions. Like one question, for, for example, is there something that my life, is there something in my life that needs to be removed? Is there something in my life that needs to be changed? I think every one of us has to ask that question. Because every one of us has something. If we didn't, we'd be perfect. Now we're working toward perfection. Not perfect. Lastly, and I want to finish with the, with the whole chapter, but verses 23 to 25 says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. Assyria also... And we'll see this in another chapter later. But Assyria also. That highway is a picture of communication and openness toward each other. They were avowed enemies. But look at what God has done. He's opened this highway for them. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt, the Egyptian into Assyria. The Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. With, notice, not under. In that day Israel will be one of these with Egypt and Assyria. There's going to be three. A blessing in the midst of the land. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. You know that that phrase is actually seen in Scripture as Israel, my people. We don't oftentimes see Egypt, but this is the only place where we see, Blessed is Egypt, my people. Anytime he says that, God, when God says it, it's usually Israel. But he says, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. And this is an amazing thing. You know what? I don't understand it. I wish I did. I'm, I'm learning. I'm trying to learn with you what this all means. But what this passage speaks about is an amazing work of redemption. God is promising that a day will come when there will be peace between Israel, Egypt, and Assyria. And in that day, the Lord will bless all three nations. Is, is it going to be in the millennial kingdom? More than likely. But it shows that God's mercy and salvation will be extended to the nations and He will call forth His own even from Egypt and Assyria, not only from Israel. In Isaiah's day, Judah was hoping that Egypt would save her from the Assyrians. But remarkably, in the millennium, these three powers, Assyria, Egypt, and Israel, will have a harmonious, peaceful relationship under God's hand of blessing. All of this, of course, will fulfill part of the promise to Abraham that all peoples on earth will be blessed through him. Genesis 12, verse 3. I will bless those who bless thee. I will curse those who curse thee. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, verse 3. This teaches us some things that I want to leave you with tonight. I don't know how many there are. I didn't count them. Nine of them, I guess. First of all, God's grace comes to the very worst of men. Can you all concur with that? Can you all say amen to that? God's grace comes to the very worst of men. 
Secondly, God's grace sends a Savior. God's grace sends a Savior. You'll notice that that's what is told to them. In verse 20, they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors and He will send them a Savior in a mighty way. Thirdly, God's grace changes a man's language. Now, think about just your own language for a moment. What your language was like before you, know, before you knew the Lord? What it's like today? Quite different. We had a little bit more spice in our language before, right? Now our language is, is seasoned with love and grace. It better be. <laughs> it better be. Fourthly, God's grace sets men on holy service. God's grace sends men, or sets men, I should say, on holy service. The fifth point is that God's grace teaches men to pray. We are seeing that in, with Egypt in the future. They will come to know the Lord. They will call upon Him. God's grace instructs men. God's grace makes even trouble a blessing to a man. Trouble will become a blessing. God's grace changes the relations of men to each other. Egyptian and Assyrian, we never thought it would happen. Egyptian and, and the Jews, Assyrians and the Jews. God's grace changes our relations. God's grace makes men to be blessed and to be a blessing for others. God's grace. Shall we pray?